0: presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. How's that? Did we get rid of the echo now? Speaking in tongues. Yep, it's just a little button I had to press. Well, there you go. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Lady Shar. Hey, Drunk, a Song of Ice and Fire History. We know your real name, but I won't give you away. What's up, Tim F? Johan? All right. Newt? Looks like everybody's rolling in now. Okay. So, we got, uh, we got some good questions sent in, and we're going to go ahead and rip with those. But um, if any you guys in the chat have any questions you want to fire up, go ahead and throw them out. How did everyone like the last essay? Um, I'm getting a lot of people saying it was one of their favorites. Everyone likes Aegon and his sister wives, Visenya and Rhaenys. And to find such detailed moons of ice and fire symbolism there was pretty exciting. I can't even remember when I first found that. It was a long time ago. I got to say, these moons of ice and fire essays about the others, I've... I wrote drafts about them as long as, like, two years ago. And for some reason, I just sort of kept going with the Bloodstone Compendium stuff, and then I got into the Green Seer stuff, and I did the Green Zombies, and I just kept putting off talking about the others for a while and gradually stored up more and more discoveries. But um, once it came out, I don't know, it's it's pretty fun. It has the benefit of me having done basically two years of research before writing about it, whereas the other stuff, a lot of it, my horizon of discovery is about, I'd say, you know, like a month or two months ahead of where I'm putting out episodes. Um, but with the Moons of Ice and Fire, I've really had a lot of time to organize my thoughts. So, like, I found the others, Kingsguard connection, you know, a long time ago. And uh, same with the Warrior sons. And then the Hills, you know, the Hills with the two conquerors, or the three conquerors, I should say. Speaking of that, I don't know why they, they don't ever say Rainey's the Conqueror and Visenya the Conqueror. All three of them did the conquering. But uh, in any case, that was one of the more exciting pieces of symbolism that I found. And I was really excited to bring that to you guys. So I'm glad that you guys were thrilled with that. It's always nice when we have something that can unify one of my episodes. Because I'm really talking about a motif. You know, like the waves of blood or the dark solar king or whatever. And usually to trace one of those motifs, you have to hop around with different characters and different scenes, and I'm very aware of the fact that sometimes it can get a little confusing. And so whenever you have uh, a model like Aegon and his sisters, and they have the same symbolism that runs through like all of their battles, and the conquest, and their personalities, and their dragons, and the hills, it's really nice and neat, and it allows me to give you an episode that's really contained and coherent. So I think everybody likes it when it's coherent, right? Yeah, my notes would make you not want to read my essays. Like, I got to tell you, there's a big difference between throwing a bunch of ideas out there in an unorganized fashion and then, like, carefully tailoring it to a, a narrative. Like, it really makes a difference. Um, you know, I read some of my first drafts when I first started writing, and they're just bouncing all over the place from topic to topic, and it's really... It's hard to read, and it's, it just makes it sound a lot more crackpot. So in order to present uh you know this stuff like see a lot of people when they're doing theories and stuff they're trying to make the theories that's the point is to like guess someone's identity or to guess how the story's going to end or something like that my purpose is really to to look at the symbolism and to show people that martin is doing this whole thing with metaphor and symbolism and then along the way we get a lot of theories um so but the theories aren't really aren't really the point of themselves so i guess what i'm saying is Okay, I remember what I was trying to get to. My point is, like, if I just threw it out, you know, with all the conclusions first, uh, it, would, it would sound really cluttered and confusing. When I write an essay, sometimes I periodically uh, think about starting with all the conclusions first and telling you, this is what I think, and now we're going to go prove it, and then go through and prove it. But that, that writing order never really works for me, because the conclusions come out at first uh, too bold, And it sets the listener sort of against it. And then I'm going through and listing all these examples. And it's like, oh, so you're trying to prove this grand thing with this little bullet point. And it doesn't really hold up. It's not as exciting. So what I like to do is start with one little idea that is understandable. And then just build it up and sort of take you along the path of discovery that I have. Where I start with one connection and go, hmm, could it be? You know, is it possible that... And then we sort of, okay, well, look, here it appears again. And look, this other character is giving us the same symbolism. And then sort of gather them together. And then we together, like me writing and you reading, can sort of analyze it and say, well, what does this mean? And then that's when I like to throw out my ideas, but then sort of invite you to say, well, but what do you think? It could be this or that, you know? So that's the format that seems to work for me and and keep it away from sounding like too much tinfoil. And see, our Snapple fact of the day is Over 80% of the land in Nevada is owned by the U.S. government It's all desert, don't get excited It's all like uh, Area 51 alien uh, shelters, right? Oh, well, Lady Shaw, you're quite welcome I'm just asking the questions about spaceships and storms And that have to be asked All right, so let's get with our first questions That were sent in here it was a little behind-the-curtain chat. All right, so beginning with Vanessa Amnesty from YouTube, she asks, are Sansa and Arya parallels of Visenya and Rainys, Meaning, are Sansa and Arya doing a moons of ice and fire thing? Um, now, obviously, Sansa and Arya are giving us moon maiden symbolism, but I, do, I don't really see them as uh, ice and fire parallels, necessarily. They both do things that are more complex, I guess, Arya is actually more like um one of the male figures. She's more like a Night's King, Azor High Reborn, Black Meteor figure. And she's also got that Children of the Forest symbolism. As I mentioned on the uh, Weirwood Goddess series, she's basically a combination of death goddess and Children of the Forest symbolism. So it's not so it's she's she's giving us Basically some ice and fire symbolism because there are some characters which um, show you like mostly... The, like Melisandre is mainly a fire moon character. Night's Queen is an ice moon character. But there are other characters who show you more of a dynamic path. Because we, ha- we start off with the sun and the comet. That impregnates the fire moon. The fire moon explodes. And then those fire moon meteors, which are like a reborn sun or a transformed sun they go and land places like one of those impregnates the ice moon and that starts a whole new chain reaction. And some of them land on the earth. So each, each step is like a rebirth and another impregnation. And so some characters show you several steps along the way. And Arya and Sansa are both like that. So it's not as they don't, they don't show us neat ice moon, fire moon people. However, Two people that do show us very uh, nice and neat Ice Moon, Fire Moon characters are Kat and Lysa. And Lysa obviously would be the Ice Moon character. I I mentioned her in the last essay uh, when we went to the Erie for just like three paragraphs. And it ended with Lysa being even colder than the room and she's wearing sapphires and moonstones. And obviously sapphire is like the most famous blue star gem that's been used in the books. And the moonstones are, you know, most moonstones are whitish blue, kind of milky colored anyway. So they look like an ice moon. And then just the simple term moonstone, uh, you know. Whoa, <laughs> Joe Magician says, whoa, I tune in to LML talking about meteors and moons. What are the odds? Yes. Hey, Joe. Thanks for coming. All right. <clears throat> so the point is that uh, Lysa is an ice moon character. And she goes to the Eerie, which is like a really strong ice moon ...symbol, as we're going to see. And I keep hyping up the Sansa... ...slash Eerie essay. It's going to be really good. It's um, one of the ones I've been excited to write for a while. I've got a lot of notes, but I haven't written it. And uh, then, on the other hand... ...Cat, as you know from the Weirdwood Goddess series... ...Cat is a fire moon character... ...pretty much all the way. Except for... Uh, I will say that if you notice Lady Stoneheart... ...who's the reborn figure... ...she's actually doing some combination of ice and fire... Because even though her eyes burn and she's animated by fire magic, she's also uh, her voice comes out like a stream of ice, and she's also got that whole hate side of the uh, you know fire and desire, ice and hate balance that we talked about from uh, the Robert Frost poem. So, to answer your question, Vanessa, Sansa and Arya are a little more complex, but they're uh, but Kat and Lysa are pretty straightforward. Fire and Ice Moon. So Sansa, just to give you a preview of Sansa, she starts off with a bunch of Fire Moon uh, symbolism at King's Landing. And I covered that in the Waves of Night and Moonblood episode. All the symbolism that she does with getting her first moonblood and the things that, she burning her sheets uh, while the King's Landing is under siege and her scenes with the hounds, uh, those are basically all Fire moon's scenes and all the symbolism In those scenes, matches like Daenerys' alchemical wedding scene. But then, when she leaves King's Landing after a bunch of... uh, She leaves King's Landing after the purple wedding. And the purple wedding is, is symbolic, again, of fire moon death killing the sun. So Sansa is one of the fire moon people in that scene. She literally turns the sun's face dark by virtue of her hiding the poison in her hairnet, the black amethyst poison, which is compared to purple snakes... That's what turns Joffrey's solar face dark. So that whole purple wedding scene is a fire moon incident where the moon uh, goes through the fiery transformation and darkens the sun. Then when Sansa leaves King's Landing, she turns into a stone, as in Sansa's stone. Haha, get it? She turns into a stone. So this is the fire moon now exploding Sansa is now a stone meteor flying away from the impact zone. And where does she land? She lands in the Erie, which is an ice moon symbol. So I've started to talk about the whole dragon lodged in ice thing, which is just my phrasing for this fire moon meteor that is, strikes the ice moon. And that's what Sansa is showing us. When she goes to the Erie, she is like this black meteor lodging in the ice of the Erie. And this is a really important thing because this has to do with the origin of the Others. The reason why the Others have this frozen fire thing going on is because of this black media that's inside the Ice Moon, symbolically. So I'm going to get into that a lot more, but basically the the short answer for Sansa is that she transforms from a Fire Moon to an Ice Moon. So when she's in the Eyrie, she's doing a lot of Night's Queen stuff. Um, And that's because she is the piece of the Fire Moon that lodged in the ice and transformed into an animated ice moon. Yeah, I'm a wild man. I'm wild. I'm crazy. I didn't even wear my horns. I was thinking about just wearing the horns every time. It was so much fun, but I don't know. I decided against it. So Emma Smith asks a question, have you got any other full series planned or are you building on all of your compendiums from now on? Um, so I like to start a new series whenever I can. Because I feel like um, it's better marketing. Like people prefer more different topics versus series that go super, super long. Because a super long series seems really intimidating. Someone who comes and clicks on the pod and like, oh, I've only got to go through 14 episodes to see what the point is. You know, they're not really jazzed about that. So I like to split them off. Like the Weirdwood Goddess series was actually It started off as part of the Weirdwood Compendium. And I realized I was sort of shifting topics over to this more specific Nissa Nissa weirwood connection. So I decided to make that a separate series. So Joe Magician says, get the horns. But uh, there you go. So to answer the question, there are more compendiums planned. Specifically, though, I'm going back to the Weirwood uh, compendium. When we're done with Moons of Ice and Fire, we've got more like Odin, uh, Yggdrasil stuff to talk about. And then we're going to go back to Moons of Ice and Fire uh, and analyze it with all the Weirwood ideas in mind. Like you guys may have noticed, so far in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, I've basically steered clear of all the Weirwood connections that the others have. And the others obviously have a ton of connections to the Children of the Forest, to the Weirwoods, and the Green Greenseers. Because if I try to talk about all of the stuff at once, it comes out like a total clusterfuck. And so what I'm doing is basically I'm working through the Moons of Ice and Fire stuff just talking about the others and their connection, their symbolism of, you know, icy moon meteors and dawn and all that stuff. And then we're going to swing back around through a lot of the same scenes that we just looked at and talk about the connections to Weirwood. So there's going to be like two layers to the Moons of Ice and Fire series. Then we're going to start a series called Sea of Green Fire or the Green Seer Compendium or the Sea Green Compendium. I haven't decided on the name but it's essentially going to be all about um, the the watery symbolism in the story, uh, the patch face stuff, squishers, deep ones, merlings. The thing is that all of that uh, watery symbolism isn't really talking about deep ones and squishers. It's talking about green seers. And there's uh, I mentioned somebody named Ravenous Reader on my podcast frequently. It's one of my best friends on the forum, and she's. Obviously, one of the preeminent minds of the forum, as I like to say. She's very smart, and she contributes a lot of ideas to the podcast. She made one of the most important discoveries ever that uh, in all of the symbolism and punnery that's in A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's basically the idea that the word S-E-E-C and S-E-A-C are being switched, all right? Raven- oh, we have ravenous reader here in the chat in code. Hiding. Hiding in the chat. Is that what's going on? Incognito. In any case, when Patchface says under the sea, what he's actually talking about is inside the weirwood net. The green sea. Think about it. The green sea. The green seers. So, I don't want to let too much out of the bag because it's such a good idea that it's going to be worth multiple episodes. Because basically... Every single piece of aquatic symbolism in the books is actually telling us about green Sears. and it's just—it's just totally brilliant. Ravenous Reader is going to get tons of credit. I'll probably sort of co-write it with her, run the drafts by her, or something like that, because I'm basically blowing up her idea, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So, let's see here. We've got, yep. Uh, you can all check form, friend, reference off your LML bingo cards. Yeah, that was a fun little. Diddy we did on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter by the way, and you're in the Song of Ice and Fire Fandom, you are missing out. There's the Song of Ice and Fire Fandom sort of spans across many different forms and forms of social media, but Twitter is pretty fun. So at the Dragon L M L is me on Twitter, and you should find me and then you get plugged into the network. So All right, Uh, next question comes from Stephen Curtis from YouTube. I wonder if the Sept of Baylor is burned down with wildfire as in the show. Does this possibly foreshadow the destruction of the ice moon? Answer is yes, absolutely it does. Um, And that is, I sort of mentioned that in the last episode where I talked about the idea that there are several fiery symbols hiding inside the... Oh, no, I didn't. I'm, you know, I have to I have to say, I'm sort of like three drafts ahead of where I've published right now, so sometimes I get confused what I've put out and what I haven't. But um, as far as the dragon locked in ice thing, inside every ice moon symbol, you'll find a symbol of the black meteor, the potential for fire. And so the wildfire in the Sept of Baylor is one of those examples. Um, remember how I just said that Sansa... Turning into a stone and becoming lodged in the eerie is like the fire moon meteor getting stuck in the ice moon. Well, Cersei does the same thing when she goes and gets stuck in the sept of Balor. And they even shave all her hair off, which is sort of symbolizing a meteor whose fire has been put out. So Cersei, obviously, is a fire moon character. She goes and gets trapped, literally trapped, in the ice moon symbol. So that's basically, and Cersei obviously is compared to wildfire many times. So the idea of wildfire hiding under the Sept of Baelor and Cersei being stuck in the Sept of Baelor is basically the same symbolism. And so the idea that Cersei will set it on fire with wildfire in the books, just like in the show, I think that will happen because it fits the symbolism. All righty here. So I'm getting a couple compliments on the Crips episode that I did with Joe Magician. And thank you very much. That was loads of fun. It's fun to do something that's not quite so serious. Uh, all the time, but then still make it kind of serious. Because friggin' hey, there's a lot of quotes about those statues waking up, so it really does invite speculation. All right, so next question uh, comes from my friend Dern Durnden, who, by the way, was one of the earliest collaborators on my stuff. I give him credit from time to time, but a lot of the Great Empire of the Dawn uh, theory connections came from Durn Durnden. He's the one that noticed the gemstone emperors in Danny's dream having the same gemstones as, or I should say, the the kingly ghosts in Danny's dream. Her wake the dragon dream in, in a Game of Thrones have four of the same gemstones as the gemstone emperors. He's the one that put that together, uh, and he put together a lot of stuff that contributed to my early essays. So, Durn Durnden is right up there in the Mythical Astronomy Contributor Hall of Fame with Ravenous Reader and Blue Tiger. And Monica Lemos, <laughs> who just walked in the chat, also known as Painkiller Jane. Anyways, Dern Derned and asks, I love, or he says, rather, I love how straightforward the symbolism is in this one. And that's what we were talking about earlier. The two hills jumped out at me when I was reading Sons of the Dragon. You fleshed that out pretty well. I guess we know why the Red Keep is red now. Yes, for Red Solar King Azora High. I do wonder if the connection could go both ways, implying not just that the Night's Queen created the first White Walkers, but that the first White Walkers were the Kingsguard of the Bloodstone Emperor Azor High slash whoever the hell Night's King actually was. This is the offhanded reference in The World of Ice and Fire about fanciful stories of a certain hero being, certain heroes being in the Kingsguard long before there ever was a Kingsguard. Simeon Star Eyes, Sirwin of the Mirror Shield, and other heroes have become fodder for septons and singers alike. Did such heroes once exist? It may be so, but when the singers number Serwin of the Mirror Shield as one of the Kingsguard, an institution that was only formed during the reign of Aegon the Conqueror, we can see that wa- we can see why it is that few of these tales can ever be trusted. So I think that Sirwen of the Mirror Shield is listed as a Kingsguard. Uh, I think Martin did that for specifically symbolic reasons that I'm going to explain in one of the next episodes. But to Durn's question, the idea that there was an original, something like the Kingsguard, if you will, Azor Ahai's warriors that got turned into the others. Uh, Yes, I think that something like this happened. And we're going to talk about this more when we get into the whole timeline of the Night's King and the Night's Watch and how the Night's King can be the 13th Lord Commander uh, and all that stuff, and still have lived during the Long Night. But basically, I do think that the Night's Watch was probably formed from a pre-existent group. Um, my first guess would be the Sacred Order of Green Men. Um, obviously, based on the Green Zombie series, there's so much symbolism about Green Men becoming uh, becoming the first Night's Watch. Although, it's possible that symbolism could basically be just simply telling us that green seers resurrected these zombie night's watch brothers not that the original brothers were actually you know stag men or whatever the green men are but it's very possible that they literally were green men of course we don't know what green men are exactly so there you go but it could also be that Azor High's sort of you know his crew because i always say like Azor High or Azor High people because i don't like to be overly specific Um, So it could very well be that the first others were essentially his, you know, they were created to be his companions uh, or something along those lines. Very possible. So I see a couple of questions in the chat here. Uh, Joe Magician says, ever notice how the Night's Watch vows basically mirror the characteristics of whites?" No children, no wives, just endless duties standing on the walls like gargoyles. Yeah, that sort of lends a little credence to the green zombie theory. Chicken Lipstick says, Do you think the white meteor the Danes have as a piece of what the others might worship, opposite of the black one and the bloodstone emperor worship? Could it be? Could it have been made in the lands of always winter? Absolutely. That's definitely one of the things that's immediately suggested as soon as we consider the idea that dawn is ice, is that this... this uh, Because there's no reason to necessarily be really certain that the dawn meteor fell at Starfall. That's the kind of legend that could easily be translocated uh, with people who brought the meteor sword and set up a great house. I mean, if the dawn meteor could have fallen in the Far East and the Danes that migrated to Starfall from the Great Empire could then have simply taken the meteor legend with them and attached it to dawn. So that's possible and the dawn meteor could have come from the north, that's very possible. If there's a meteor in the heart of winter, it might be the white meteor that dawn was made from. Uh, The other thing that I've wondered about is what if dawn actually comes from a black meteor? I know this sort of goes against my theory, but dark meteors are black. However, when you refine them into steel, they're going to turn into like a silvery steel. So there is a possibility that there's... uh, actual color transformation going on with the stone, but I would like it if there was a big... If we get to uh, the other temple in the Heart of Winter and there's like a big white stone obelisk, that'd be pretty damn cool. Has anyone asked about Selyse's role in the Triangle, Painkiller Jane? Yes, you're just uh, getting one episode ahead. In the next episode, I'm going to cover Stannis. He's he's a, obviously a big Azor high knights King figure. He's got uh, Selyse and Melisandre as Queens of Ice and Fire, and Solis will be the Ice Moon Queen. So, yeah, we're going to talk about her? Absolutely. Uh, Do Do you think, uh, Cameron Charles, do you think Children of the Forest and the people from the island of Nath might be related because they share similarities like the big yellow eyes and living in nature and small stature? Yes, I do. I think that there are other beings related to the Children of the Forest, like the Nathi and... Uh, the old ones on Lang, because the Langi have large golden eyes. The weird thing about the Langi is that they 're really tall instead of really short, but they have that golden skin and they have the eyes that see in the dark and the old ones themselves live underground in you know caverns and caves, kind of like the children of the forest so yeah i think I think the children of the forest are related to other races that are out there let 's see uh teflon t v What's up, Tony? Thanks for coming by. He's asking everyone to hit the like button. I think that is the least that I could ask of y'all. All All you have to do is move your mouse over to the little thumbs up button and depress it one time. Then we've got some more questions. What is my take on Salisa? Okay, I answered that one already, sorry. Let's see. I've got an idea about that. LML via Ancient Armies. This is from Joe Magician. Uh, ancient armies used to be made entirely of whites. They are functionally better soldiers and don't need sleep or food. Well, that, that might be where it's going if we see any sort of King of Winter, uh, you know, resurrecting of the old Starks to fight against the others. And I'm already proposing that the original Night's Watch were undead zombies fighting against the whites. So, uh, meteor shower that like button, people. That's a good one. Thanks, Tim. I like that. Keep it fresh. Let's see here. Although I, I'm not sure if the, uh, the armies of the living would have an entire army of undead. That would be some pretty necromantic stuff, but we'll see. What's up, Alaska Sandman? Thanks for uh, sending those ideas to me on YouTube this week. He says, I'd rather like the idea that while Dawn was forged from a meteor, the main difference between Dawn and Beleriand Steel... The white and black tree is used for carbon into iron to make the steel. So, yeah, that's so. there's a lot of symbolism about uh, tree swords. And I haven't gotten into it too much. It's more on the Dawn side of things. But obviously you guys know the Yggdrasil myth and the Barnstalker sword that was pulled. Actually, I'm sorry, not from Yggdrasil. Barnstalker was pulled from the Barnstalker tree. The sword was named Graham. Sorry, just getting this all screwed up. Uh, So, yeah, the sword Graham was pulled from the tree, and there's a lot of swords from the tree myth. Uh, I think even King Arthur's sword from the stone is really just a variant of this. So, one idea, one way that we can have a tree sword is because in order to make milk glass, what you actually do is you add ash to glass. And one of the best ways you could get ash is from burning trees or uh, bone ash, And, of course, weirwood bark is compared to bone. So one of the ways that Dawn could be literally a tree sword or have some sort of weirwood magic in it is if that came in the, you know, adding the carbon. That's what the ash is used for. That's, I'm sorry, a related idea. Milk glass is made with ash, uh, but you can also use ash for the carbon to make swords with as well. So I like that idea. I do think it's in play. I'm hoping to follow that train of thought a little further when I get back to Tree Swords. Do I think Aemon and Vagar are representative of Bloodraven? So, no. Um, Amon and, and Vagar are showing us the opposite of Bloodraven. They would match, actually, Euron Crow's eye. And Euron is another one I'm going to talk about in the next episode. But Euron has one blue eye, just like Aemon one eye. And Amund rides the white dragon. So, if Euron were to steal Viserion, then he would essentially match Amund and Vagar almost exactly. And I think this is like sort of the arch nemesis character of Blood Raven, who's the one eyed Red Seer, if you will, playing on Team Fire. Um, so, similar but opposite. The Weirwood Shade of the Evening thing is perplexing, there's obvious parallels. Um, I'm actually going to drill into that in my next episode, so I will reserve that question for then. Let's see here. And, uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and jump to Dairyman's contribution. It's all the way at the end, uh, but Dairyman has a cool blog on WordPress called The Plowman's Keep. And he always has very insightful comments, and he says just a few thoughts on the hoary old bitch thing, which I found interesting. Hoar isn't just a synonym of snow or ice, but to be a bit more precise and pedantic, it is the frost that encases solid things on a particularly humid cold day, hence the idea of frost. When John sees those trees encased in ice, they're covered in hoarfrost. Hoar is literally the magic north of the wall, if you will, so thus it's an especially apt term. For Vagar, Then he says, So, whilst reading about the Iron Islands in the world of Ice and Fire, it came to me that this might be related to why the Ironborn who took over the Riverlands were from House Whore. Not sure how this jibes with the whores having black blood, but it cannot be a coincidence to call these raiders essentially Icemen, Icemen who met their doom on the God's Eye. So what I think the idea... So the hoarfrost is the ice that covers things, Right? And so when the black moon meteor, see you later, Aaron. Thanks for coming by. Catch the rest on YouTube. Uh, in any case, when the black meteor gets lodged in the ice, it get, it's kind of like a, first of all, it's kind of like a sword being tempered in cold water. But essentially what happens is the meteor fire is put out and the meteor is frozen. So when we have the black blooded line becoming whores and becoming frozen, if you will, that's, that's more of that frozen meteor symbolism, I believe. However, I'm going to follow up on that when I get back to that topic because I'm sure there is probably more there. And in fact, um, if you'll just be patient with me for a second, I will flip over to westeros.org where somebody made a really cool connection after Dairyman posted his comment there. And I thought it was really good. It comes from Corvo the Crow. Okay, so he says um, Taisha, he believes that Taisha is the sailor's wife in Bravos, who's one of the uh, whores, ladies of the night, shall we say, one of the quarter in Bravos. Um, and her daughter is Lana, who is supposedly worth three times as many as the others. And that is actually a call out to. The story of Tysha when Tyrion, uh, when Tywin told Tyrion to give her a gold coin instead of a silver because a Lannister is worth more. So, this is a theory that's been running around for a while um, that Taisha is, you know, Tyrion's long lost Taisha is actually the sailor's wife and her daughter, oh, pardon me, got a phone call, and her daughter Lana is actually potentially Tyrion's daughter. Um, so, the interesting connection here, he says, Not only is Bravos a series of islands, but do you know where Sailor's Wives go in particular? The other whore said that Sailor's wife visited the Isle of the Gods on the days when her flower was in bloom and knew all the gods who lived there, even the ones that Bravos had forgotten. So the Isle of the Gods is very similar to the Isle of Faces in the God's Eye. And we were just talking about how the whores of House Whore built their castle on the God's Eye and then met their doom on the God's Eye Lake. And then here we have a whore, if you will, going to the Isle of the Gods. So I'm going to follow up on this line of symbolism. I can't tell you exactly what it means yet, but it does seem to be a connection going on. And if you think about the God's eye eclipse alignment, the whole idea of the God's eye is that it's, a, it's an eclipse. It's a moon coming in front of the sun and making an eye. So if the ice moon is going to get a meteor uh, event happening to it as well, it's going to make another God's eye. Um, I'm sure that we'll get a replay where we'll see the moon wander in front of the sun and there'll be an eclipse and there'll be an explosion. Um, that's when I throw myself a party, bake myself a cake and declare myself the winner of the Internet. Uh, hopefully that'll happen. Maybe it won't. But if it does, we'll get another God's eye. So I think that um, that's why we see one eyed symbolism with ice people like Euron or uh, Amund one eye. Or, uh, who's the other one that has one blue eye? Oh, Waymar in the prologue. And then we also get one-eyed God's eye symbolism with the, uh, with people like Bloodraven and Beric. Hey, Sanrixian, thanks for showing up. Nice shirt. Yes, it is a nice shirt, isn't it? This is the Three Black Dogs by Sanrixian. And I got it in blue and gold. It's got an eye and a Cerberus thing going on. So I bought that shit up as quick as I could. Sanrixian does custom t-shirts and puts them out in limited runs. So you got to jump on it and buy them when she puts them out. So uh, y'all should do that. Because as you can see, her shit's pretty cool. I've actually got her cooking up a couple of mythical astronomy um, ideas that might end up on a t-shirt eventually. So speaking of uh, mythical astronomy and t-shirts, I'm going to... Give our patrons a little shout out, which is something I don't usually do on the live stream, but my patrons are great and they deserve more credit. And I just added a starry host page to my lucifermeanslightbringer.com website. For the first time, you can now go and see all of my patrons in one place, or at least all of you who have sent in information to get a name. Um, A lot of people just sign up and don't send in info for a nickname, which is totally fine. But uh, if you are a patron and you don't see your name on this list, then you either need to send me some info or maybe you just sent me info and I haven't got you a nickname yet, in which case don't yell at me. But here is the, our first tier of patrons. We're called the Guardians of the Galaxy. And I've named all these after the various constellations that are in A Song of Ice and Fire. So we've got one open position, which is the Ice Dragon. So if you want to be the Guardian of the Ice Dragon... You can sign up, but everyone else has taken. We've got Sharon Ice Eyes, Dread Ferryman of the North, Wielder of the Staff of the Gods, and Guardian of the Moon Maid. Sir Cletus Ironwood Reborn of the Never Lazy Eye, Wrestler of Bulls, and Guardian of the Stallion, which is the Horned Lord, north of the Wall. Lady Jane of House Celtigar, a.k.a. Monica Lamos, a.k.a. Painkiller Jane, who's in the chat. Emerald of the Evening and Captain of the Dread Ship Eclipse Wind, a Guardian of the Crone's Lantern. Sir Imriel Jourdain of the Tor, Spinner of the Great Wheel and Guardian of the Sword of the Morning. Sir Harrison of House Casterly, the Noontide Sun, Whose words are deeper than did ever plummet sound, Guardian of the Shadow Cat; Sir Morris Mayberry, the Upright, Climber of Jacob's Ladder, Whose words are, I drink and tweet things, Guardian of the Ghost. Lady Diana, the Ghost Huntress, Pursuer of Truth and Guardian of the King's Crown, Which is the cradle north of the Wall. Antonius the Conspirator, Knower of the Unknowable, Dispenser of Justice, whose housewords are Atu Rufus, Guardian of the Galley, and our newest Guardians of the Galaxy Patreon, Memosyne, sign." sorry, it's a little tricky. The Poem on Two Feet, Mother of Muses, Rider of the Dragon Sega, and Guardian of the Swan. All right, so you can see we've got some pretty creative nicknames going on. Alright, so next question from the folks who sent in questions ahead of time. Actually, no, let's check the chat and see if I missed anything. Hey, it's Westeros History. Let's let's all pat each other on the back for our great Crips episodes. So if you have enjoyed uh if you enjoyed our Crips live stream, Westeros History just did a very much uh thorough and exhaustive Exploration of not only the crypts, but also how Stark they went into. Probably my favorite part of the episode was when they went into all of the uh, the named Starks that are in the tombs and gave us a little info. The Edric Snowbeard section in particular had me all fired up. So check that out on History of Westeros if you don't listen to them already. I'm sure pretty much all of my people listen to them already. So, yes, we got lots of Tales from the Crypt suitable for the Halloween Sawen month. So there you go. All right. Uh, so we've got Dern Derned and answered that one. JHS Blackfire. Yes. JSH Blackfire on YouTube says, I have a question, theory LML. Hope this message finds you. Yes, it did. The Kingsguard protect the true royal blood of the dragons, Targs, and yet they are a symbolic embodiment of the others, both created by Ice Queens who are married to the Sun King, aka Bloodstone, Night King, etc. So does this mean that the Others were created to be loyal protectors of the dragon lords and not the children of the forest like the show suggests? So this is, um, this is similar to a question that we got asked earlier. And yeah, that's kind of one of the implications. Azor Ahai made the Others. The thing is that I think, I'm pretty sure he did that by attaining the fire of the gods through the Weirwood magic. The entire point of the Weirwood compendium is to show you that Azor Ahai was on some mission to obtain the fire of the gods, and that's that mission involved becoming a green seer, or invading the weirwood net, or something like that. So, if he became knight's king, or if his son became knight's king, or brother, or something like that, then basically he created the others not to protect. See, I, they, yeah, I would disagree with the show. I don't think it's as simple as the children of the forest made the others because the humans were fighting them off and killing, killing the uh, children. That's a believable storyline. It makes a certain amount of sense, but I just think it's going to be more complicated in the books. Um, so, yeah, the, the purpose, the motives of Azor Ahai, Night's King, creating the Others is something we're going to have to figure out. Um, the idea that they're protecting him, yes, I mean, that's part of it, but I think there's something more to it that we're going to have to dig into. So I probably can't give a quick answer to that right now. Then he says, um, oh, he's got some additional comments. Let's see. Oh, I went the wrong direction. Oh, that's okay. Emma Smith says, who's in the chat, by the way. Hey, Emma. Great work yet again. Beautiful catch with Vagar's coloring. I had been trying to look for the ice symbolism in Sunfire Vagar versus Mellie's Battle a while ago, and there it is. Um, I was just wondering what you thought of the wildfire activity at the Dragon Pit. So the I is cremated there by the pyromancers. Raven commands the pyromancers to burn the corpses of the Great Spring Sickness, making it look as though they were living dragons again in the dragon pit. And then there's the prostitute and her customer finding one of Ares slash Rossart's secret cache of overripe fruits uh, beneath the dragon pit and uh, makes Arian Brightflame—oh, Arian Brightflame drinks that one. So is it all a case of Naughty Green Seers breaking the moon, or is there something more going on? So when we get to that compendium about all of the undersea stuff, the Green Seers and the Green Sea, we're going to see that the wildfire plays into that because it's liquid and it's green, but it's also fire. And what I've noticed about wildfire is that it's not limited to ice, team ice or team fire, if you will. Like we find it under the Sept of and we and we find it associated with a dragon pit. And so what I think we're being told is that Greenseer magic is essentially like the one sort of original magic and that, or alternately you could say that um, both the others and the blood of the dragon people, whatever that is, both come from Greenseer magic. So think about the others, okay? The show shows us straight out Children of the Forest creating Night's King using a weirwood tree somehow. And in the books, there's lots of clues about the children of the forest and the Green Seers having a hand in creating the others. So we know that ice magic is some sort of offshoot of Green Seer magic. Now look at the blood of the dragon. Look at the dragon riding connection, the dragon bond. It's kinda sort of similar to skin changing, but kinda not. It's not as direct. Um, but I th- I suspect that whatever is the truth behind the Valerians' blood of the dragonness. Their reptilian blood or their connection with, with dragons is also a mutation of green seer and skin changer magic. So essentially, green magic and wildfire as a symbol is sort of at the center of everything. Stephen Stark, greasing up the rails of the super chat, says History of Westeros called me in. Thanks, History of Westeros, and thanks, Stephen. No, Joe Magician, no, I'm not, no. I'm not going to put on the horns the first time someone sends me a super chat. we got to send some sort of, like, some sort of goal and then work up to it. And then maybe I'll put up the horns. History of Westeros didn't give you Sean dancing until we had 1,000 viewers. So we'll have to think about what that's going to be. But, yeah, thanks, Westeros History. Sounding the Twitter alarm. I appreciate that. Let's see what we're up to with viewers. Up to 64. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming by. Okay, so that was the Green Seer question. Very good question about the wildfire. Yeah, so you won't get me dancing. I'm not much of a dancer. Sean actually has dance moves. So after he built up all the suspense, when he finally busted a move, it was very gratifying. And I wouldn't want to let you guys down, so... Eric from WordPress says, LML, thanks again, but now I'm sensing a conflict in the theory of who created the others. From your prior stuff and other reading, TV show, etc., i had assumed Azor high Grey King, Bloodstone Emperor, whoever he is, had killed Nissa Nissa, who became Knight's Queen, and then Azor High became Knight's King. Uh, then the children created the others and caused a long night via magic comet as a defense against Knight's King and Knight's Queen and men in general. Am I reading this post correctly? And that you are saying Knight's King, Knight's Queen created the others and not the children. I suppose if Nissa Nissa is a female child, then both could be true. Yes, that's right. Which in turn would imply, I think, Nissa Nissa is not Amethyst Empress. So maybe those are the two wives? Okay, so there's definitely a little bit of overlap here that he is... Yeah, see, Monica says I should play the guitar. That is more realistic. I'll bust out some acoustic bass for you. The four-stringed harp of brimstone. Ooh, that's good. Johan with the poetic touch. That is good. So basically what I think is that Night's Queen and Nissa Nissa probably both have children of the forest connections. I'm not entirely 100% certain on how, how all that shakes out. Um, but I definitely think that Seer magic is involved. So when Night's King and Night's Queen quote-unquote created the others, I think that there is... Green Sea or magic involved. Either, either Azor High has become someone who can use the Weirwood Knight at this point, or perhaps uh, Knight's Queen already has a connection to the Weirwood. But I think it is a case of where they're like sort of both are true. Um, there, is, there are Children of the Forest connections in all of this. And the other thing is that we have to consider the idea of hybrids, of humans with Children of the Forest descent, ...being more common than we have now. Like, the Starks, theoretically, they must have had some infusion of Children of the Forest blood... ...either through the Marsh King or the Ward King or something even more ancient. Um, But, you know, 8,000 years later, they don't look like Children of the Forest anymore. Like, the Cranog men look a little bit elf-like, which may or may not be because of, like, more recent connections... ...to the Children or more influx of Children of the Forest blood... But the Starks have distant children of the forest blood, and yet they look like people. So when you go back to the Dawn Age and the Age of Heroes, I think there's a lot of evidence that there is a lot of green seer kings, uh, or at least skin changer kings. Um, one of the most important things, I think, in A Dance with Dragons is in Bran's last chapter, okay, he sits in the weirwood throne. He has his first set of visions through the weirwood face. Then, and that's after he eats the paste, and he's sitting in the throne, physical contact with the Weirwoods. But then after he's done with that, they take him to his bedchambers, they put him to bed. He's no longer touching Weirwood or anything, and as he's falling asleep, he's looking at the candle flame. And he falls asleep, and the next thing that happens is he starts seeing more visions out of the Weirwood, even older visions, in fact. This is where he sees the white-haired woman forcing down the captive and, and slashing his throat, and Brand could drink the blood. All of that happens in that second set of visions. He's not connected to the weirwood. And what that means is that once a greenseer has bonded with a weirwood tree and eaten of the paste and made that connection, they can access the weirwood net without sitting in that throne, which means that you know, at first we tend to think we see Bloodraven and we think, oh, well, the Green Seers are powerful, but they have to be chained to the Weirwoods in a cave. And so that limits, you know, their power in a lot of ways. But Bran shows us that actually, while the Greenseer is young, he could theoretically walk and talk and swing a sword and sit on the throne and be the king and have a connection to the Weirwood net. And if you think about that, that is a scary kind of power. To have, even if it's just um skin changing. But a green seer who's not chained to a tree, those people would end up kings, is what I'm saying. Um in in ancient days like this, it's the most powerful people that end up with with the rule. So when we read about the war king, that's a clue. Like that's a clue. Like wargs and skin changers, they became warlords and kings. Like you'd look at Veramir Sixkins, six Sixkins is pathetic, okay. But people like him in ancient day that had more power, they would have been kings. And if you look at um, Bran's use of his wolf at Queen's Crown, that was the scene where John is with uh, the wildlings and they've, you know, he's still with the wildlings. They've, they've climbed the wall and he's commanded to kill that old man and he balks and hesitates. And then Summer jumps down into the fray and starts kicking ass and John escapes. Well, Bran is basically sitting in the tower... Just sitting in there, he's just a little crippled boy sitting in a tower. But through his use of just one wolf, he basically drives off all these people and affects a little fight. So if you think about war kings and multiple wolves and multiple skin changers like this is this this would be a force. So kind of going off subject here, but the point is, I think in the dawn age and the age of heroes, there were a lot more hybrids and humans that were green seers, quote-unquote. So anytime we see stuff about the green seers you know, brought down the hammer of the waters, or the green seers did this, we very well could be talking about human hybrids and not simply children of the forest. Because the one thing I always say when we talk about the children of the forest is that the children of the forest are not the protagonists. Like, mankind overall is the protagonist of the story. The, the children of the forest are an adjunct. They are facilitators, they are nature spirits, but they are not going to be the ones who are responsible for the long night. They didn't commit the original sin. That's going to be man. And so what I, what I see is a story about a man with great hubris, Azor High, reaching for the fire of the gods. And him obtaining that fire and that power is kind of what sets off all this disaster. So all of the theories about who made the others and who broke the moon, the answer in my mind always has to be human's basically playing with magic that they they shouldn't have been. So, okay. And Ravenous Reader in Disguise mentions that specifically we should notice that Bran accessed the weirwood net while staring into the fire. And that, I've always found that to be tantalizing. It's like literally the last thought he has before he falls asleep is he's staring into the candle flame, and then he hops right into a vision. So, all right. Um... Okay, Joe Magician says, he's always found it interesting that we're told that powerful green seers have red or gold eyes, that they're marked by those for their power, but Bran has blue eyes. Maybe he's in another class. So it says specifically that the children of the forest green seers are marked with red or green eyes. It does not say that humans are. So when we have human that have a children of the forest descent, it's pretty murky. It's not clear. And even Bloodraven has a red eye, but he's also an albino. So that's very inconclusive as well. And I totally missed a super chat from Stephen Stark. Yes, I did. Thank you for pointing that out. If Azor High is a villain and John is Azor High reborn, does that mean John is a villain in the endgame? Full disclosure, I only found you recently catching up. Cool. No, that is a very valid question. That is not, a, uh, it's not something I've completely explained. So that's a good question. So essentially, villain is probably. Um, too simplistic of a word. When I started out talking about Azor High, everyone looks at him as a hero. And so I use the word villain to sort of cut against that and to show you, look, this is the guy who broke the moon. But what I think we're being shown is that like, the solution to the problem um, is inside the problem itself. So, for example, the moon broke open and we got these meteors and we made this sword from it and it's all bad but in the end i think that sword that came from the moon was what we needed to use to kill the others kind of just like the 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 myth suggests and so i think what we have is like azor high breaks the moon and then his son or a reborn version of the original person is the one who essentially ends the long night and sort of atones for his sin. So there's kind of like an atonement thing. And we see that in a lot of arcs with our characters, where they sin at first, uh, Jamie's the obvious one, and then they, they prove to be useful. And it doesn't mean that Jamie's a completely morally upright character, but he'll have sufficient redemption to do something useful. Or we can even go further into the Machiavellian realm and say that perhaps there's going to be something that is quote-unquote evil, like stabbing your wife, for example, that's needed to actually save the day. And so perhaps we need a quote-unquote villain in order to, uh, you know, to save the day. So there's a lot of gray area in there. John isn't a villain, but as I'm going to show in the next episode, there's a lot of suggestion of him as a villain and him sort of echoing the knight's King. Like, everyone thinks of him as an oath breaker. And he kind of did break his oath, even though he had good reason to. So that theme of moral ambiguity is really strong in John's arc already, I would say. Bubba Husky says, wouldn't Gendry be the only character able to fulfill the Azor High reincarnation prophecy, being as he's the only one capable of making a sword? Okay, well, I guess that would be a little bit more of a literal reading of the prophecy than I would take. But if you've noticed, uh, Bubba Husky, I've pointed out Azor high symbolism in a lot of people, including Gendry. And there's variations of it, obviously. Um, but I think it is very suggestive of the idea that there isn't going to be just one hero, but rather it's going to be a set of heroes where everyone plays their role. And so Gendry might be the smith of this whole mess. He might be the one that's forging the sword and someone else is going to swing it. Um, I don't think... We're going to see like one guy literally smith the sword and then, and then go fight with it. Um, that's impressive, but probably not. But I am going to talk about Gendry because he's a really interesting character. He's got blue eyes that are compared to ice. Um, but then he's also got the fiery bull's helm in a couple of scenes. So he's one of these characters that shows us a, a version of Azor High Reborn that's mixing ice and fire, just like Jon Snow is. Hey, it's Voice of the First Men. Hey, voice, thanks for coming by. He says, man isn't the protagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire. The land is. Well, I mean, it's all semantics. What I'm saying is that compared to uh, Children of the Forest, you know, man is, mankind is going to be the one who's responsible for the, the great sins. And I, I really don't think that the land is. I think, I think the land is definitely a central character. Um, but the, the protagonist, the one who's reaching for the fire of the gods is, you know, Brandon, as you would say, or Azor High or Knight's King, like it's a man that's, that's doing that. So that's what I mean by protagonist. Um, but you're right to point out that the land itself and the weirwood net is kind of like one of the important characters of the story. Uh, original sin, burning of the weirwood trees. Yep. That's, that's one of them. Um, and I've... I've, uh, I know, Voice, you're not caught up on all of my various theories, but I've proposed that, is, that the burning of the weirwood, that the burning tree is a symbol of Azor high obtaining the fire of the gods, which is, in my opinion, tied to the creation of the others and the cause of the long night and all that original sin. So, yes. Uh, let's see here. If John warging into ghost before dying and being used as a soul vessel theory is correct... Uh, And Mel's, now he was a man, now a wolf, now a man again. Yes, that's essentially one of the main foreshadowings of that idea, that John's going to go into the wolf and reappear. And some people think he's coming back with white hair. I think that. Um, And red eyes. Yes, see, I would like it if John came back with red eyes and white hair and looked just like a weirwood and his wolf. Um, So, (laughs) that's cool. Voice of the First Man says... The protagonist is the heart of the world in conflict with itself. I'll go with that. That's pretty good. I like that. All right. Uh, Gendry at the end with all those children is like the last hero, Thunderclap points out. Yeah, that's a good point. He is sort of the defender of the children there. That's an interesting take. I'll have to think about that angle. Let's see here. I'm going to go back to the questions that were sent in. Jill Ayala from YouTube says, Something I picked up on a long time ago that people yell at me for. As far as I can tell, Jamie is the 13th Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. He would have been the 16th, but Rayello's three were stricken from the record, so he's the 13th. Westeros history. Can I get a verification on that? Resident historian. In fact, uh, if I pop back over to my... Patreon acknowledgement page and scroll down to the priesthood of Starry Wisdom, we will find one, the Black Maester Azizel, Lord of the Feasible and Keeper of the Records, whose rod and mask and ring smell of coffee. That is, of course, our good friend Aziz from History of Westeros. So, Keeper of the Records, tell me, is Jamie technically the 13th Lord Commander of the Kingsguard? Because if he is, that'd be pretty interesting. Jamie's symbolism obviously he's a Lannister so he starts off as a sun figure uh and he plays that sun role uh when he when he shoves Bran out of the tower but then he puts on the king's guard armor and becomes another symbolically so what is that telling you that uh, that is something to do with a fiery person like Azor Ahai or one of his henchmen turning into another and there's a lot of that symbolism going on uh so that's We're going to talk about that a lot. um, But the point about Jamie is that if he's parallel to Knight's King as being the 13th commander, then that 13th and 300 years is too few. It does seem like it's too few. Maybe it's only 13 that are named. All right, well, we'll do some research and get back to you on that one and see if that is the case. Thunderclap question two says, I only recently heard the theory that Jamie was born, or that John was born using a C-section from the sword Dawn, born under a bloody star being the sword, a bloody sword, a star sword, Dawn. What's my opinion? So this theory, if I am correct, comes from the Last Hearth Forum. Last Hearth Forum, uh, I've mentioned my friend Voice of the First Men a few times, and I've got some other friends that hang out there. Last Hearth Forum is not a huge forum, but the people on there are really deep. And there's a lot of really well-written essays that are diving into pretty complex symbolism. So it's definitely worth checking out. I've got a link to that on lucifermeanslightbringer.com on the little sidebar menu. And um, there that idea comes from there, the, uh, the C-section theory. So I haven't, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, the idea is that, you know, all the blood in the bed and, uh, you know, I, I assume that the idea is that like Leanna died, and then the baby had to be cut out. Much like the uh, the pregnant the comparison, I guess, is the mother direwolf from the first, the beginning of the book, where they find a dead you know a dead wolf and then baby pups. So maybe Leanna died already. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if I'm doing the the theory full justice. You have to look it up, but basically, it's it's. Uh, so do we hear of a C-section anywhere else in the books? Yes. So when Viserys is uh, threatening to kill Danny um, in the big Dothraki festival when he gets killed by Droga with the with crown of gold. He takes his sword and puts it at Danny's belly and talks about cutting the bloody foal right out of you. Um, so there are a couple of other symbolic scenes like that that could be a C-section comparison. So it's not a crackpot. I thought it was kind of crackpot at first and I looked at it harder and it seems like it's got some... Some possible credit to it. So, I mean, you guys know that when we find out the truth of the Tower of Joy, there's going to be some awful things. It's not going to be. I mean, I do think that Lyanna and Rhaegar um, were in love, but I don't expect it to be a, a sweet little story like we see in the TV show. I expect there will be something more awful. So that that could sort of could sort of uh, fit fit it there. And also, um, when I talk about the the black meteor being lodged in the ice moon, part of what we need to do is get that sucker out of there. <laughs> so we do need to sort of like have the ice moon give birth, if you will, or let go of what's inside it. Um, so that, that could be the whole story of John's birth, essentially, is being reborn from the ice. And that parallels to John, by the way, having his body put in the ice cells, which is a lot of foreshadowing for. Um, so if he's resurrected out of the ice cells, that's kind of very similar Uh, to that. So, Faith Elizabeth Ann sent me a super chat. Thank you, Faith. She says, I have a theory that the Starks stole a child of the forest, and now they have stolen Bran as revenge, and plan to use him against the humans. That's a pretty interesting idea. Um, I've never heard of that, but it reminds me of a theory that I'm going to be rolling out in a couple episodes, which is that... um, not a stolen child of the forest, but rather a stolen knight's Queen, knight's King baby that was not converted. And the, the parallel would be Baby Monster, Gilly's baby, who was promised to the others, but then not converted and not given to the others and was smuggled south of the wall by a Night's Watch brother. And so I think it's very possible there is a historical parallel where one of those knight's Queen, knight's King babies didn't get turned into another, and got smuggled south and became part of House Stark, and that that is why House Stark has an icy connection. And I'm not even the first person to think of that. That is an old theory. However, I have found uh, way more evidence for it, and so I'm going to be running with that pretty soon. Uh, and so it's, but it, it's very similar to what you're what you're hitting on, Faith, with the theme of your question, as far as the others. Um, wanting Bran or wanting a baby back. So the idea is that if the Starks stole this Night's Queen baby, uh, is that the prince that was promised is actually like the debt that's owed and that John somehow has to be given to the others as a sacrifice in order to honor this debt or something like that. And uh, there's a lot of related ideas about, you know, how was the Long Night ended, some sort of pact, or maybe the Night's King giving his children to the others was like part of the pact that ended the long night and that he wasn't a nefarious villain for giving his children to the others, but he's actually like honoring a pact and mollifying the others. So they don't kill everyone. That's a really old form theory too. So what do I call the world of our planetos? I uh, of our story planetos, taros or girth. I tend to call it planetos. The first ever essay I wrote was astronomy of planetos. Um, which is kind of a clunker. I changed it to Astronomy of Ice and Fire, Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, but I've always been using the Planetos because I just kind of like it. And let's see here. Lots of C-section talk. So once again, guys, if you want to see the full theory, go over to the Last Hearth forum, thelasthearth.freeforums.net for those of you listening and not reading the chat, but I will drop it in the chat. There you go. So, Next question comes from Johan. He says, do you think that Dawn Ice went to Starfall because that's the furthest place from the wall in Westeros? Yes, I think that is one possible reason. Um, if, like, if Dawn is some sort of icy sword that's the most potent and deadly when it's in the hand of the king's uh, King of Winter or a knight's King-type figure, then it's possible that it was taken all the way south as a safeguard to prevent the King of Winter from getting that dread sword. Um, I don't know what the exact reason is, but I'm just noticing the, the parallel. Like the King of Winter figure, Ned, he's got a black Dragonforge sword up in the north, and then down south, we've got a guy with purple eyes descended of the Great Empire of the Dawn, but he's got the icy sword. So there really seems to have been some sort of sword swap. And I've got like three different ideas about why that may have happened, but one of the ideas is that they needed to take the fire sword north to kill the others, but they also wanted to keep Dawn out of the hands of Night's King or the others or something like that. So I'll probably get back to that idea in the future. Let's see here. Forced truce. Uh, Joe Magician says, I kind of doubt the Lone Night ended in a pact more of a forced truce. Yeah, no, it's a related idea. It definitely could be. So let's grab the next question here would the red comet be considered ice in space and then fire in the atmosphere? So, uh, you know, the idea is that a comet in space isn't actually burning. Uh, But if a piece of a comet were to fall through the atmosphere, then it would actually catch on fire. Um, I think that the comet is basically an ice and fire symbol all the time, simply because it's actually a piece of frozen rock, but it looks like it's on fire. And so it's essentially an ice-fire symbol. I I don't tend to think of it as more sort of complicated than that, but I could be wrong. So now I'm going to flip over to Twitter. I'm tempted to read Voice of the First Men's political post, but I will I will resist. People have been saying, you should make a uh, politics podcast, LML, since I have so much to say about politics, but if I did that, I'd have less time for mythical astronomy, and so I probably will not do that. Plus... If you want a political podcast, you should listen to Pod Save the World, one of the Crooked Media podcasts. Those are awesome. But Blue Tiger uh, left a bunch of really good questions for me. And I'm going to pick a couple of those to talk about because they are great discussion topics. So let's see here. Do I think that George knows Joe Campbell's works, especially The Hero with a Thousand Faces? This is kind of... Uh, just what you call like a a softball question here. So I've written an essay. um, It's linked under the methodology tab at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. And it's basically called George Martin is Writing Modern Mythology. And it's essentially analyzing his sort of uh, mythological style of writing through a lens of Campbell's understanding of myth. I very much think that George is familiar with Campbell. Um, and that is absolutely a thing. And I wrote a whole essay about it. So if you want to check out that, then check, click on the methodology tab of my website and you can see that one and it's kind of short too. So, um, then he asks, how do I feel about people who like my essays, but consider the conclusions too far fetched? And he asked a related question. How would you answer a question, a fan who says mythical astronomy is really interesting to read, but unrealistic since it's too complex for one guy to come up with? Well, if it's not in the books and I came up with it, then I'm one guy who came up with it. And if you think I'm more clever than George R. R. Martin, thank you, but you're wrong. George R. R. Martin is infinitely more clever than I am. And uh, if I can, you know, hallucinate all this stuff, then... George Martin could think of it himself. And obviously, if you listen to my podcast, you'll know that I think there's a lot of evidence for the core ideas that I throw out. So I would simply say that uh, it's not too complex for one guy to come up with. And that is, George is really freaking clever. And if you notice, it takes him five years to write a book. So it's not like he's just churning this stuff out. You know, these these are works of art. And um, mostly I would just say you know don't don't be uh don't you know just look at the evidence and make up your mind don't reject what the books are suggesting via metaphor and symbolism simply because you have the idea that it's just too complex it's it's really not i don't think so uh what makes an author great in my opinion and these are still blue tigers questions i think an author is great and martin martin tries to tell us this over and over he he's almost like comically over-emphatic about this. He says, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict. And this is a Faulkner quote. And basically what he's saying is that it's the characters that matter. Like you can have, the scenery can be spaceships and hyper-futuristic stuff, or it can be skin changers and a gritty fantasy environment. But at the end of the day, no one cares if it doesn't have interesting characters. And interesting characters come from the heart in conflict, and what that means is like, you know, what are you striving for in life, and what's holding you back, whether it's your own failings or your own circumstances. Like, what are you striving against? Where is the conflict? Uh, and so, that's essentially what makes an author great: is someone who can write great characters that make you attach, that make you feel. I mean, we feel like we know Arya Stark; she doesn't exist. And even if you set aside the TV show, like, the characters in your favorite books, they're real. They're as real as Santa Claus. And when you can bring characters to life in the minds of your readers, that's essentially what makes an author great. He said that will be my, my safe answer there. Uh, let's see. Another good question. The two moons. Why do you believe there was really two since Fire Moon and Ice Moon could just be the same celestial body but transformed? Um, and he mentions the sigil of House Harclay, which shows a triple moon goddess symbol where you've got a crescent and then a full moon and then another crescent on the other side. So, first of all, um, it could be one moon that transforms. That's possible. Um, I can't completely rule it out, and I've mentioned that a couple times in the flow of the series where I feel pretty good about the two moons, um, but it's, it's possible that Visenya and Rainies, for example, are showing us two different stages in this one figure's life, this one moon character's wife. Uh, A lot of people think Nissa Nissa might have turned into the Night's Queen. I don't think so, but I'm not sure. And the the whole thing I'm proposing about a black moon meteor becoming lodged in the ice is really very similar to a black moon being struck and like shedding some meteors and then just kind of freezing over. It's really pretty similar. So... I can't rule it out, and occasionally I will mention that as a valid theory for you to consider. Um, there are a few reasons why I like the two moons theory, um, and I'm going to be sort of getting into those as I go, and I've listed some, but, uh, you know, it's it's definitely possible, and it's not something that I can uh, dismiss easily, even though I'd like to find a piece of conclusive evidence that tells me it's definitely, definitely two moons and not, not one that's changing. Um, but we'll see when, by the time I get through the series, you know, you guys can make up your own mind and see, uh, see what you think. Um, Julie says, uh, oh no, she's asking somebody else a question. All right, cool. Um, so the uh, St. Rixian says, the moon's theories, one being broken, makes sense with the seasons being screwed up. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about this in a future episode. But basically, if we had an ice and a fire moon, and if they had some component of magic to them, then I feel very strongly that uh, this was governing the, the seasons. And two healthy ice and fire moons spinning in orbit the way they're supposed to. Not a very good orbit, but you get the idea. Um, that would give you balanced seasons, perhaps. And what we did was we broke the fire moon and we sent pieces of it down to the Earth. So its fireness has been inverted into this shadow and darkness associated fire. And then it's been brought to Earth. And the ice moon, meanwhile, up in the sky, got infected, if you will, by one of these black meteors. And so it's all screwed up, too. And so I think that the seasonal issue does come back to this moon moon uh disruption of equilibrium that's like or if you just want to look at it of like a thirty thousand elevation you know foot elevation view, you can just say if you had moons that were ice and fire and any sort of disaster happened to them, that could be the answer to the disruption of the seasons without getting into the weeds of how that disruption actually worked but so, Johan is asking about the warlock symbolism. So, Johan, that's going to be in Moons of Ice and Fire 4 called The Knight Was His to Rule. It's going to have Stannis and Jon Snow as Night's King parallels, and it's going to have a big section on Euron and the warlocks, and I'm going to cover the Forsaken and stuff. Yes, yeah, the, uh, the next episode is going to be pretty good. Um, it's uh, got some serious, like, Night's King stuff. We're going to start to figure out some stuff about the Night's King and Euron's mythical astronomy, like, he's up there with Barrick as far as, like, the best mythical astronomy in the book. Or Timot, son of Timot. That's another great one that I haven't talked about yet. Um, he's uh, the one-eyed burned man of the red hand that lives in the mountains of the moon. Just to sort of throw that out at you. But, uh, oh, and I missed my, oh, man, I, I asking for super chats and then missing them. Inexplicable. Thanks for holding me accountable, people. Steven asks... Explain why Joffrey is the best king ever. Details. So Joffrey is the best king ever because he does the best job at dying and showing us what happens to the solar king. His solar face literally turns black when it's struck by the purple black serpent poison of Sansa's hairnet. So that's why. He does the best job of being a naughty solar king who gets turned dark. That's about the only defense I can give you. Sanrixian is throwing me a super chat just for, uh, to get me fired up, I think. If you got a question, Sanri, throw it at me. Let's see. Um, so Julie Stiles has been... I see, I see, Julie, you're having a little bit of a conversation about the predictive value of mythical astronomy. So mythical astronomy does not... I don't predict the future very much at all. My one prediction about the future is like... Um, Actually, I've made a few small ones, but my big prediction is simply that the uh, the ice moon's going to take another impact and we're going to get more meteors and this is going to be the mechanism that causes the new long night. It'll probably knock down the wall and I'm going to have an episode that has a collection of all of that foreshadowing coming somewhere in the moons of ice and fire. But other than that, um, I don't predict the future too much and what mythical astronomy symbolism does is it gives context for the future. So when we read the next book... Um, it's going to be a trip. Like, to be honest, I started doing this entire thing after A Dance with Dragons came out. So I've never had the experience of getting a new A Song of Ice and Fire book, um, since I've, you know, gotten into this whole, and so I started unraveling all the symbolism. So when when we get to this next book, listen to this guy thinking we're going to read another book. Joe Magician. Don't be depressed, brother. Keep faith. I think T-Wow is coming pretty soon. And in fact, I have a feeling it'll be another deal where he's actually written a bunch of chapters from A Dream of Spring that are going to get cut out of T-Wow and move to the next book. But let's not get into that. The point is, when we read The Winds of Winter, um, a lot of scenes that we read are going to make sense right away because you're going to recognize the symbolism. Like, look at John's resurrection scene. I mean, you guys already know what this is going to look like. There's going to be burning black blood, there's going to be burning tree symbolism there's going to be fiery dancers you know the flames are going to look like dancing maidens there's going to be all this stuff you know some of the grab bag of symbols that we've seen before and you're going to you're going to see it like you're going to go oh shit that's all oh, that's a moon there's a meteor look uh oh, that's what LML's talking about there's a zombie so it's basically while we're not predicting the future what we're doing is we're going to um we're going to have context for what happens, so we might, we might get it a little quicker. We might understand what some of the hidden messages are going to be. And uh, I predict that when you read The Winds of Winter, you're basically going to be hearing my voice in your head going, Oh, look at that. But we'll see. It depends on how much you've listened, I guess. Oh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, we might get little fiery mice running around. That would make sense. I really think the wolf body of Ghost is going to be burnt. I really think, because he looks like the weirwood tree, and I just think the body's going to be set on fire, we're going to get Ghost and John's merged spirit back into John's body, which is then going to look more like a weirwood tree. And then he'll he'll catch on fire at the end of the story. There you go. That's my prediction. Um, The other thing I will say, though, about John's resurrection is that John should be an ice-fire zombie somehow. Like, his dream of wielding the burning red sword has him armored in black ice. And his whole thing about being the Song of Ice and Fire is that he's combining ice and fire. So, um, I, I'd like, I like the idea that his body might be raised as a cold white, and then his spirit will, like, burn out the white presence. So he'll have, like, a cold body, like cold hands, but, like, burning eyes or something like that. So, I don't know. There's a lot of combinations with how it could work, but, uh... I would really like to see the comet come back before John is resurrected so that he's resurrected under the bleeding star. That's what I would predict. All right. So, red eyes, I hope. Yeah, I hope so, too. Let's see here. I think I'm going to give you some more of the starry host. This is the earthly avatars of the Twelve Houses of Heaven. And of course, the zodiac is referred to as the twelve houses of heaven, and so I've named one of my tiers of patrons after uh, the zodiac. And I have a long-promised essay, which I am super, super late on giving you guys, about the zodiac, because there is a section of the world of ice and fire called the twelve notable children of Garth the Green, and those twelve children are mirroring zodiac. Signs and the myths that go behind them, but the thing is that only about six of them are obvious, and the other six are very cryptic, and you have to go into other non-Western uh, conceptions of zodiac constellations in order to figure it out. But I have figured it out, and so I will be giving you an essay that's all about the zodiac and the children of Garth uh, at some point soon. I just I have to pause my other series in order to do that so. In any case, we've got Dire Liz, the Alpha Patron, <clears throat> a descendant of Gilbert of the Vines and Garth the Green, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius, Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Leo, Rolaine Dervish, Wolf's Witch of the Wolf's Wood, earthly avatar of Celestial House Scorpio, Searing Abyss, Tavern Keep of the Wine Spring Inn, Server of Crow Food, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Sagittarius, Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck, whose words are the way must be tried. Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House, Gemini. Sir Brian the Returned, the Serpent Bearer, Knight of the Last House, Wielder of Red Song, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House, Ophiuchus. Now, you might be saying, Ophiuchus, who's that? That's not one of the Zodiac constellations. Well, no, it isn't. However, Ophiuchus is uh, sort of the honorary member of the Zodiac. It overlaps with Scorpio. And he, Ophiuchus is called the serpent bear because he's a giant and he's, he appears to be wrestling a snake, like sort of behind his back like this. And there's a lot of interesting mythology behind him. And I think George is actually using, referencing the Ophiuchus myth. And that's something I'll talk about in that essay. So moving along, we've got Sir Dionysus of House Galadon, wielder of the milk glass blade, the just made earthly avatar of heavenly house Virgo and Libra. So here's the other one that I'm going to explain. The reason why Sir Dionysus of Galadon is the avatar of Virgo and Libra is because George has combined Virgo and Libra. And here's how he did it. This is really clever. And it has to do with the sword called the Just Maid. Okay, so there's the bear and the maiden fair. And there's a lot of talk about fair maidens. um, And then we've got the sword called the Just Maid. Now, instead of thinking about a fair maid as in oh she looks fair, think about her as being fair as in just. So then you can see that the fair maid and the just maid is actually the same term. Now here's the thing: the constellation Virgo, the Virgin, appears to be holding the scales of Libra, and they're they're sort of apart from each other, and they count the the dividing line is right here, so they count as two different constellations. But Virgo and Libra are essentially part of the same thing. We have if you look at the um you know lady lady justice that we have inside the courtrooms in the United States she's a blind lady holding forth justice, and the idea is that justice is blind it doesn't discriminate but this this that's actually mythical astronomy that is a representation of Virgo the virgin holding the scales of Libra. she is the just maid because she holds the scales, so it's that she's the fair maid, so when we hear the story of uh, Galadon of Morn, he was given the sword the just made by the maiden herself. So the maiden herself can also stand in for the moon, and so the moon giving someone a sword is really just more swords coming from the moon talk. But the whole idea of um, uh, Virgo and Libra being combined means that we need one extra constellation to make 12, and that's why he inserted Ophiuchus. So... Anyways, there you go. Um, then we've got the mystery knight, known as only Rusted Revolver, who's in the chat. The Lilith Walker, great Dane friend, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Pisces. Ash Rose, queen of sevens, mistress of mythology, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Taurus. Queen Cameron, lady of the twilight, keeper of the astral cats, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Ares. The child of the forest, known only as Feathercrow, the weir cat Dryad. Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Cancer. And Matthias Mormont to the Seagoat of the Bottomless Depths, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn. All right. So, random question from Emma Smith. The Red Priests use slaves to worship their fire god. So, is the enslaving of the Night's Watch done by Night's King akin to using slaves in a parallel ice church? I didn't think about that. But, um... I'd probably have to think about the theme of slavery and the way that Martin is using it, because it's definitely a big theme. Um, you know, a green seer is, in a way, a sort of a slave to the tree, and the tree is also sort of enslaved to the green seer as well. So there's a little bit of a i think I think it's something that Martin's playing with a lot, so probably can't give a quick answer to that, but the idea of, I mean, the undead are obviously slaves. And if the Knights King enslaved his brothers, then yeah, that that would be I guess another parallel, wouldn't it? Let's see here. Joe Magician, what is my favorite subtle joke that George has put into the story? Oh God. Can I think of something off the top of my head? I'll come back to that one, Joe. I don't have a quick answer for that. If anybody in the... I'll I'll, I'll do this. I'll turn it back to the chat. What is your favorite bit of humor in A Song of Ice and Fire? Pipe in with good suggestions and I will read them. Dick Crab. Yeah, no, that's... Dick Crab, I don't know if that qualifies as subtle, but everything about Dick Crab is hilarious. That is definitely true. Um, Johan says, I think the red comet... Might be oddly colored when it comes back. That would be interesting. Hadn't thought about that. I think it should be red, but we'll see. Um, Blue Blue Tiger asks, is there any evidence that there are some differences between our sky and Planetos' sky? No, I don't think so. I think it's meant to be the same. Uh, There's too many matching constellations like the Sword of the Morning being Orion. And, of course, Tolkien made um, Orion Mental Giver, the Swordsman of the Sky, and, uh, you know, the ice dragon being in the north and containing the North Pole Star, that's an obvious call out to Draco, which kind of wraps around the pole star. Um, all right, so Stephen Stark suggests uh, Duckfield, Raleigh Duckfield, who got his nightly name when he saw a duck in a field. <laughs> so that's pretty good. Um, Thunderclap says, Utter Shet, uh, can you. Expand on that one. I don't I'm not sure what you're talking about though. Let's see, Dollarus Ed. Yeah, he's not subtle though either. Um uh, yeah, so the character Braun, B-R-O-N-N, is strong, and that refers to Braun as in B-R-A-W-N. Let's see. Yeah, I do think the constellations are the same. Blue Tiger, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The shitting gold stuff, yeah, that's pretty funny. Um let's see, Garrus drink water. Uh, Stannis says, I will not suffer such abominations here. This is not King's Landing. Yeah, that's that's a pretty fun one. And in fact, who was it that did a whole episode about the humor of Stannis Baratheon? Because Stannis is way funny. Was that History of Westeros or was that somebody else? Let's see. Um... Joe Magician likes the, yeah, that George included the Giants beating the tri- uh, undefeated Triarch Bellico. Which refers to the Giants beating Bill Belichick's perfect season. Yeah, that was was pretty funny. Let's see here. Painkiller Jane says, By the way, Mary is called Lady of Sorrows and is represented with a burning heart and seven swords stabbing her. Which Mary is that? Are you talking about like the Virgin Mary or... Yeah, Radio Westeros, maybe they're the ones that did the the Stannis humor. I think you're right about that, Joe. Okay, so it was History of Westeros with the uh, the Wit and Wisdom of Stannis Baratheon. Ah, uh, there you go. Cool. All right, uh, let's see here. Oh, there was one more from Blue Tiger I wanted to get. The second moon catastrophe, how would the people survive? Do you agree with Preston Jacobs' theory about Winterfell, Casterly Rock, mines of Castamere being bunkers? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't I don't know what Preston's theory about that is, and he's probably making it in reference to, like, a nuclear holocaust, which I wouldn't agree with. But functionally, yes, I do believe all the caves and stuff were one of the ways that humans hid out and survived during the long night. And I believe the children would be instrumental in that for sure. Let's see. Um, Jordan, I've watched a few of Preston's videos, and... I like Preston. I think he's a nice guy. I like his presentations, really high quality. I don't agree or buy into any of the science fiction uh, ideas, and I've talked about that a few times on different live streams. Um, so um, like him and respect him, but don't agree with the, with the sci-fi stuff. That's basically the short answer. Let's see. Um, it's going to take a couple more questions here and then probably call it. So if you've got any last questions, go ahead and get them in. Okay, here's more subtle humor from Stannis. Without a son of Winterfell to stand beside me, I can only hope to win the North by battle. That requires stealing a leaf from my brother's book, not that Robert ever read one. ba boom Okay, all right, so Monica and is filling me in here. So the Virgin Mary had seven swords. There's, there's a depiction of her with seven swords in her heart to depict the seven sorrows that she had to endure. So there is, I need to look up the Catholic Mary um, mythology because I definitely think it's being used for Night's Queen and Nissanissa. And if you guys remember the cover of that book that they showed in the show that had the like skeleton person standing on the moon and holding some sort of sword or comet, that actually turns out to be just an adaptation of uh, a very famous depiction of Mary standing on the moon. Um, so I need to do the full report on that. Stealing leaf. What do you think, uh, Blue Tiger? you think that's a clue about stealing children of the forest? Stealing a leaf from his brother's book? Could be. And yeah, so yeah, San Rixi and the red comets are unusual in the sense that they really only ever look red because of specific atmospheric conditions. Usually they look blue and white. Johan, why are there see children of the forest on thrones in the cave? Well, so we talked about that in the... Uh, in the Winterfell Crips episode, it's really weird because they're we're not even sure if they're dead or not, um, or if there's anybody home. Or like are they basically just corpses being kept fresh by the Weirwood roots or it's pretty strange, um, because we're told Blood Raven's the last green seer, so they obviously don't count as green seers, but they used to be green seers. So I don't know, I'm I'm waiting for an answer on that one, quite frankly. Thanks, Steven. Appreciate the questions, man. Thanks for dropping by. Send in the super chats. Oh, yeah. Arya's got some funny lines. That's true. Um, one of them, talking about Gendry. He's just stupid. He likes to polish helmets and beat on swords with hammers. That's pretty funny. I like some of Arya's little snotty lines. Those are the best. Tyrion and Jamie are probably the funniest characters, though. I like sarcastic humor, so... All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I think I'm going to... I've actually got one more thing for you. Before we go... Yes, it's Thundar, the Barbarian. And his son, Sword. Oh, it's not going to give you the sound from this. But look, it's a red comet and a moon cracking. Wait, what's happening to the Earth? It's an age of swords and sorcery and, oh, tidal waves... Got to destroy the Golden Gate Bridge. Every movie does that. Got the Doom of Valeria going on here. What's going to happen next? Yes, all the technology is gone. The moon is cracked open. Did you see that? Let's, Let's go back. Let's go back. What's that in the sky? Oh, we missed it. Where is it? Oh, 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 it's a cracked moon. Cracked moon, ladies and gentlemen. We've got some wargs. Yep, we've got some skin changers. There's the Horned Lord creating dragons. We've got the Unchained Giant of Umber and uh, Volkswagen. How'd the Volkswagen get in there? And, oh, what's that? It's Dawn. And, uh, okay, well, okay, so not everything correlates. But uh, you get the idea. (laughs) So let's go back to the other scene. We've got the Sun Sword and we've got the Moon wrecking. So what that is, uh, that is the intro to the Hanna-Barbera series called Thundar from the early 80s. And uh, this is sort of an example of how Martin combines all sorts of influences in his stuff. So you see a flaming sword. You should definitely think of Excalibur and the flaming sword that the garden, uh, at the Garden of Eden that the angel has there. And you should think of Mithras and also Thundar. So this is kind of how George works when we talk about you know, oh, one person couldn't have thought of this. It's too complex. Be like, take a look at what he's doing here. Like, it's, it's, it's eminently George. There's a sense of humor to it. It's not just a matter of copying mythology. He's also copying Thundar, and he's copying Marvel comics, especially the ones from the 60s and the 70s, and giving shout, you know, talking about Bill Belichick and the giants. Like, this is his magnum opus. And what he's doing is he's putting everything that he likes and everything that he's been influenced by he's finding a way to use it as to create this master story. So in in a certain sense, if like the entire world was destroyed and all we had was a song of ice and fire to tell the story of human civilization, it would do a pretty good job of like incorporating all the themes of storytelling and literature and mythology. Like that's almost what he's trying to do is to like almost to create a time capsule of literature and art that he's inspired by. And so that is the context that I would encourage people to see what he's doing. It's, uh, it's, it's very much carrying the torch, um, carrying on the tradition of symbolic art that all of his influences and heroes have been creating, and he is doing his part to keep it alive to the next generation. And that is basically the most important thing that he's doing. That's what motivates me, to do all this stuff and to keep showing all this cool stuff that Martin is doing inside his books. Like it's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's fun and it's clever to figure out the, the stuff, but there's an actual, like, I really feel like this is important on a worldwide scale. The idea of symbolic literature, uh, the classic themes of mythology using symbolism in this way, it's really important. It speaks to a deep level of the human psyche and it's something that we can't lose And George Martin is trying his best to keep it alive. So I'll go ahead and end on that note and uh, say thank you to everyone who joined me. And like I said, the next episode is going to be all about Night's King parallel characters, Stannis, Jon Snow, and Euron. And there will be another dragon battle. And it's going to be pretty friggin' cool. So I will see you next time, folks. Thanks for joining me. And now I will end the stream.